You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from the book of Acts, chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when, he, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putili. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. So we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius, and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because of the Jews, I, because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you, to speak with you, since it is because of the people of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying 
to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. In their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word to us. We are thankful for the appearance of the Lord Jesus to us, for uh, the interruption of Paul's life that Jesus, you um, interjected yourself into the advancement of the kingdom and that it is all written down here in the book of Acts for our good and for our benefit. Lord, we pray now for grace to trust you more even as we sit under your word here together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to see you all this evening. Uh, JJ just read the entire last chapter of Acts. It was a long one, and we've done that now several weeks in a row, just read a whole chapter. But it's good to get the whole narrative as it is unfolding and even uh, wrapping up here. We have been on a long journey, both for us and for Paul. Like I was just praying, Jesus had indeed interrupted, redirected Paul's life away from teaching, uh, teaching his Jewish countrymen, Paul's Jewish countrymen, about the law of God. And now Paul finds himself in the far-flung places of the world, teaching the people of Italy about the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah of God, about the king of creation and of his kingdom. But compared to last week in chapter 27, where Luke, like, seemingly totally understand what makes a good story. We saw the, like, the classic narrative arc of setting and rising action, of crisis and climax, of resolution, falling action, a new setting. The book of Acts here just kind of seems to abruptly end. There's no huge climax. There's seemingly no amazing resolution. Now, as I've shared with several of you before, Kurt Vonnegut once said that every good story is a story about a man in a hole. That is, first of all, who's the man? What is the hole that he finds himself in? How does he get out? Can he get out? That is what, I mean, any good story that you've ever appreciated, that's it right there. A man in a hole. And last week was quite a hole for Paul, but we came to find out that the main character of the story really wasn't Paul. Paul wasn't really in the hole. He was fine just all along. He was finding himself, as we sang last week, leaning into the everlasting arms. But it was those who were the strong ones, the powerful ones alongside him in the boat that were the ones needing rescue. And while Acts 28 has some crazy narrative, the ending does just kind of sneak up on us. Like when you, maybe you heard the last verse or two that JJ read and you're like, wait, that's it? Like, but I've heard about Acts 29. There's a 29th chapter, right? Uh, nope, that's it. That's it. Uh, and we'll eventually see, I think, 
in our time together that that is the end of that story, but it is not a dud. Let's dig a little deeper and perhaps think and reflect more deeply throughout this chapter and through the book of Acts, the the Acts of Jesus through his church by the power of the Spirit, and together here consider that the proclamation of the kingdom endures and advances. I didn't introduce myself to you or welcome you here. There's several of your faces that I've never seen before, so we're really glad you're here. My name is Nathan, one of the pastors here. We have been preaching through this book, I think, what did I say a couple weeks ago? Since last September, so almost a year now. So we're glad that you are with us on this last Sunday of this book. We're going to think about this last chapter in two halves. Uh, thinking about the message of the gospel. We're first going to think about the power that is preserving the messenger. We'll think about that as Paul is on the island of Malta. And then secondly, the enduring power of the message. The power preserving the messenger and the enduring power of the message. So, first of all, in this first half, the power preserving the messenger. There is some crazy stuff going on here in Malta. Malta is a tiny island due south of Sicily. If you can imagine or in your mind's eye, think of the boot of Italy. Sicily is the soccer ball that the toe of Italy is kicking away to the west. And just due south of the soccer ball of Sicily is this tiny island of Malta. And Malta is where the Roman ship that Paul was being held captive on last week in chapter 27, this is where the ship washes up onto shore. And the native Maltans, Maltans, the Maltensians, the Maltesians, the Maltese Falcons, I don't know what the natives there are called, whatever we call them, uh, Luke writes that they show unusual kindness to all of these people who have just washed up onto shore. Hospitality and generosity going so far as to even build them a fire because it's cold. Welcome to our island. And that's when the crazy starts. Paul grabs a bundle of sticks and after he throws it in, uh, literally my worst nightmare happens. Uh, Seemingly, he drops the sticks and in like slow motion, a viper with like huge open mouth with like terrifying music behind him comes up and like just fastens onto Paul's arm, clamps down on his hand. I mean, like seriously, we, my, my family and a couple of us, we went to the zoo last week and I could not get out of the reptile house fast enough. Snakes are the worst, and I operate under a, I think, what is a biblically defensible worldview that the only good snake is a dead snake. Amen? I know that is ecologically terrible and not true, uh, but amen. Uh, Snakes should die, and I think Genesis 3 tells us that. Uh, Anyway, uh, the venom, it's not one of those like quick strike things, like clamp down. And so what's happening in Paul's body now is like, like those nightmare videos that you see of like snake handlers putting fangs into cellophane and like milking, that's what you call it, that's a terrible word for that, but milking a snake. And so venom has now just coursed into Paul's veins. And the Maltans know that he is a dead man. Their worldview seems to follow that of Job's friends way back in the book of Job, that if you encounter suffering, especially suffering such as this, that is fast, that is quick, unexpected, disastrous, that you have somehow earned it. They come to the conclusion that Paul must be a murderer. The sea could not kill him, but this snake certainly has. This is a theology of cause and effect. That is that good lives cause good results and happy lives. Bad lives cause bad results and suffering lives. But this is a mystery. This is a mystery that 
nearly all of the biblical authors from beginning to end have tried to untangle that oftentimes good lives, good lives end in bad results. Good lives end in suffering. And that often bad lives often are followed by good results, by happiness, by accumulation of things, by power, by even happiness. Remember the Cormac McCarthy quote that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but mostly on the unjust, or mostly on the just because the unjust stole their umbrellas. That's just the way of the world. And so at the end of Job, after all of Job's friends have counseled him, hey man, your life is terrible and full of suffering now. What do you need to repent of? At the end of that book, God appears to Job in the whirlwind and says that he alone, God alone is wise and good. At the worldview of the Bible is that trying to understand the world and our very, very small place within it is like trying to understand the backside of a tapestry or even, perhaps even better, the, the underside of a tapestry. When you have this perspective, it looks all jumbled and terrible and makes no sense, seemingly no design, seemingly no care. We are limited in our wisdom and our perspective while God is not. We assume that just because we can't think of any good reason for suffering, there must not be one. But one reason, the Bible tells us over and over again, one reason that suffering does exist is that it is often God's way to make us wake from our small-minded pursuits of comfort, or as C.S. Lewis says, suffering is God's megaphone to a deaf world. That also, for the Christian, suffering is often the means through which God develops perseverance, develops hope within his children. Not because he is angry or because he is reckless, but because he is wise and because he is loving. But the kicker in all of these things is that none of us are are actually good people who deserve good lives that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of this sin, of our self-worship, of our self-reliance, of our indifference, of our opposition to God, is death. We are owed death. It is what we have earned. Certainly not happy, healthy, carefree lives. Death comes for us all, sometimes after seven years, sometimes after 70. But it comes for us all. And each day in between is a evidence, is a display of God's mercy and of his grace. The only one who has truly lived a good life, the one who has earned blessing, who has earned favor, the only one who deserved this kind of like Newtonian life of cause and effect, but then didn't receive it because he received death in your place is the God-man Jesus Christ. This is the one who appeared in resurrection life to Paul on the road to Damascus, who made him this formerly feared and famous persecutor of Christ now into a humble and courageous witness for Christ. And it is this same Jesus who appeared to Paul way back in Jerusalem in chapter 23. And he said to Paul as he was sitting awaiting trial in Jerusalem, He told Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is a promise from Jesus made to Paul. Is Paul in Rome yet? No, he's in Malta. So is he worried? No, 
as a viper hangs from his hand, emptying its venom into his body, is he worried? No, because of this promise that Jesus has made to him. The Genesis 1, 2, and 3 chaos of the sea and the snake has tried its best against God's messenger. But just like in Genesis, when the creation power of God overcame them, here in Acts 27 and 28, the new creation power of God has overcome them again, has overcome the sea and the snake to bring about the surety of God's promises. Now, should we, if you ever are out hiking the Pinot Trail or something and get bit by a rattlesnake, should you not then run to the hospital? No, you should do that very quickly. Uh, Should we intentionally handle snakes and let them bite us in faith? Absolutely not. Uh, In the same way that we should wear seatbelts or perhaps get vaccinated. Human responsibility is commended and affirmed in the Bible. Wisdom is to be valued and cherished. We've got lots of time to think about that come September when we open the book of Proverbs. We are not Paul. We have not been given a specific promise from the Lord Jesus to make, make us essentially an unkillable immortal until... Paul arrives in Rome. And so that's why I've titled this section, The Power Preserving the Messenger. Paul didn't have a promise to protect him from any and all suffering. If anything, I mean, just the snake bite, that had to have hurt, even if it didn't kill him. But even more than that, he had suffered for the sake of the gospel practically from the very first day that he began to follow Christ. But just like Jesus, who Paul had united his life to the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the announcement of the good news that God's Messiah had arrived to deliver his people from sin, to bring them eternal life, to reign over them in joy and peace and forever. Now that message would continue. God would protect that message in this chosen messenger, in this particular vessel of Paul until he got to Rome. But as we keep going, Paul doesn't leave for Rome yet. He stays for a good three months. He shakes off the viper with a shrug and the Maltins, the Maltensians, whatever they're called, uh, think that he's a god. Just like we saw happen in Lystra in Acts chapter 14. Though Luke doesn't clarify, we can assume that Paul corrected and rebuked them in the exact same way that he did with the people in Lystra. But then, right then, kind of strangely, If he's trying to persuade them that he's not a god, maybe he should have held back a little bit because he just starts healing people. We won't get back into what we've already explored uh, and thought about about five or ten times throughout the book of whether or not what we see in Acts should be descriptive of a specific time and place or if it should be prescriptive for us and what we should come to understand and expect for today. But I did hear a question this week that made me stop and think. Now, Paul is just like so many other characters that is given to us in this story of unfolding revelation of God's redemption of humanity. And while I'm absolutely not suggesting that God can't or doesn't heal in the same ways that he does here in Acts 28, why don't we ever ask, um, does God still lead his people through the Red Sea in an exodus from Egypt? Of course, we don't, we, don't, we don't think to ask that question because we intuitively know that that was a clear moment in history and time and place. I think it's perhaps legitimate for us to apply that same logic to Paul in these early times of healing and extraordinary miracles as like an Exodus-type moment 
of history, of miracles and plagues to demonstrate and validate the God of heaven and earth to the nations who are observing. But even though Luke gives us the account of Paul healing many people, it sure doesn't seem to be the point. It sure appears like Paul has made clear that he is not a god because even amongst amongst all this healing, no one is still worshiping him as a god. Even after this healing, undoubtedly in the days spent with these folks, he had shared the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, which had become the entire reason for his life, the entire meaning of his life, the reason why he's actually here on Malta in the first place, and the reason why he must keep on moving. The gospel of the kingdom that Jesus has come and lived and died and now reigns. Healing and health are not the meaning of life. Jesus is. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ, even amidst suffering or even amongst health. Matt even mentioned Philippians 4.13 earlier, in which just before that, Paul says, I have found the secret of life. Everyone seems to be out on a quest for the meaning of life. Here, here's a secret, Paul tells you in Philippians 4, that whether he has a lot or a little, whether he is healthy or sick, he can live with joy and contentment in all things, in whatever scenario he finds himself, through Christ who strengthens him. The healing was never the point. Jesus was. And so Luke keeps us moving as Paul keeps moving. The preserving power of the messenger gives way now second to the enduring power of the message. All right, so without pulling out our geography maps, they set sail up north and they land finally on the coast of Italy about 100 miles south of Rome, where surprisingly, perhaps, many Italian Christians have come to greet Paul. They had apparently somehow gotten word that he had landed. Perhaps by now, his letter that he had written to the Romans a few years earlier had started circulating in the area, and they were anxious to meet the guy who had written the letter that they had all now been reading and considering. One way or the other, though, they finally get to Rome, where Paul then essentially sits under house arrest. Verse 16 says that he was by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This doesn't mean that one soldier indefinitely was assigned to him, but that one soldier at a time would sit with Paul and handcuff himself to Paul. That's quite a job. Can you imagine how initially excited these Roman soldiers must have been to have sit down on the ground, perhaps, or on this first century sofa or something, uh, handcuffed to a Jewish guy from the backwoods who keeps talking about day after day after day another Jewish guy who was executed about three decades ago, whom this first Jewish guy claims is the God of heaven and earth. That would have been something. Like, how did you get the short straw to be handcuffed to that guy? But it's here, being handcuffed to Roman soldier after Roman soldier, that Paul writes his so-called prison letters, likely uh, the letters of our Bibles that are Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. And do you remember what Paul says about these Roman soldiers to whom he's handcuffed in Philippians 1? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
So not just those who are handcuffed to him, Paul and his gospel message has become known to the entire imperial guard throughout Rome. Everybody knows about this guy. And most of the brothers, Paul goes on in Philippians 1, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Roman soldiers are hearing the gospel. The good news that the Messiah, the one who would come to rescue humanity from their uh, humanly revolt against heaven, the one who would die in their place to bring forgiveness, who would rise to new life to bring resurrection power to his people, who would ascend to heaven and reign and rule until the full measure of his people of all nations had been brought to him. These Roman soldiers are hearing of this. And the Roman brothers, the Roman Christians, are being encouraged by his imprisonment. Through this sitting day after day of suffering in Paul's place, the gospel goes forward. Not only that, but while we know that the small church of Rome was made up of both Jew and Gentile, which, by the way, is the entire reason Paul wrote the book of Romans, how and why should Jews and Gentiles live together and love one another, that's what the whole book is about. Evidently, there are still Jews in this massive city who have not yet heard the gospel. In verse 17, he calls some of the local leaders, perhaps, or presumably, different synagogue leaders in town to come to him. And he he is expecting, when they come to him, he's expecting to then launch this huge defense of himself, basically repeating everything that he has said over and over and over again on trial after trial after trial over the last two or three years. But they essentially say to him, after he's saying, I'm about... I'm expecting to give this defense of myself. They say to him in verse 22, uh, yeah, we've never really heard of you. The Jews of Judea or Asia or Greece, they didn't apparently send any advance warnings about Paul, about who he was. But they say to him in verse 22, we'd actually like to hear what you think about this Jesus of Nazareth. We'd like for you to, we'd like to hear from you about this growing sect of people who are following Jesus because all we've heard about it is bad. So what's going on? And so they set a day for him to give the full rundown, the full rundown of both these new Christians, this sect, and of the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, whom they follow. And the Jews come in huge numbers to hear him teach. And he teaches all day from morning to evening to show them that Moses and the prophets, just like Jesus had done on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, that Moses and the prophets, all of the, what we call the Old Testament, all of the Jewish scriptures, were absolutely waiting for and expecting the person and the work of Jesus. And just like we've seen throughout Jesus' ministry and throughout the book of Acts, some were convinced, but others disbelieved. Which is an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Not that some were convinced, but others weren't or some believed, but others disbelieved. No, Luke says that some were convinced, but others disbelieved. This is something that we've thought about uh, at length in chapters 25 and 26, that the Christian faith is indeed a faith. I don't think any of us in this room uh, claim to have seen the risen Lord Jesus walking around. None of us have seen him come from the grave. And yet, while it is a faith, it is not an irrational faith. Throughout Acts, we have seen that it is a faith grounded in history, a faith grounded on eyewitness testimony, on moral philosophy, on 
natural philosophy, on theological reflection. In other words, Luke does not say of the Jews that come to hear Paul preach, Luke does not say some of the Jews who had come to Paul, they had sensitive consciences, they were gullible, they had daddy issues, they had an innate desire for belonging, they had some subconscious motive to make order out of the universe where there was seemingly just disorder. So they stuck their ears, so they stuck their fingers in their ears, closed their eyes against all evidence that would point that Jesus is not the Christ, and just believed him because they were so gullible. No. Luke says they were convinced. Convinced by, presumably, the same kind of historically grounded preaching that Paul had been doing across the Mediterranean for the past few decades. And yet, a response to the proclamation of the gospel isn't like me, like trying to convince you that Led Zeppelin is the greatest rock band to have ever rocked. Like, I could give you evidence. I could play for you a Jimmy Page guitar solo or like some John Bonham drum fill after drum fill. And I mean, I think do a pretty persuasive job that is the greatest rock band of all time in which some of you might be convinced. Some of you might say, no, I happen to still really like the Jonas Brothers more. Now you would be objectively wrong, but I mean, we would be, I mean, kind of just, that's your opinion. That's my opinion. One's not kind of agree to disagree, right? But this is not the same kind of thing in responding to the gospel. Not so with the message of the kingdom, that to remain indifferent to the proclamation of the kingdom of Jesus is to actually remain in unbelief. Which unbelief in biblical categories is a moral issue, not just an intellectual issue. To remain in unbelief is to reject your maker. To remain in unbelief is to reject the doorway of life through which he has freely opened to you is to reject the very reason for your existence in the first place. That is to pursue and enjoy communion with the triune God. That remaining in unbelief is actually, it's just the status quo, comfortable way of maintaining your position of authority in the universe. Maintaining your position as the universal arbiter of what is right and wrong, rather than in humility as a created being, submitting yourself in humility to an actual authority, to the king of the universe, to an authority that is good and beautiful and right, righteous, just, sacrificial, and loving. And so realizing that so many of his countrymen So many of his ethnic people, his co-descendants from Abraham are rejecting their king and Messiah. Exasperated, Paul then says at the end of verse 25, you know what? The Holy Spirit was right. The Holy Spirit was right when he said through Isaiah about your fathers, not our fathers, he calls them your fathers, that you're just not going to hear, you're not going to see, you're not going to understand. But it is through this rejection that the gospel, the salvation of God, has been sent to the Gentiles. Paul quotes in verse 28 from Isaiah. It is the Jewish rejection of the gospel of many of these people, from many of these people, not wholesale, Paul himself is a Jew, many of these people are Jews, 
But that is through this rejection, rejection that the gospel will then go out to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. They will listen. And when he said all that, Luke said back in 25, they left in a huff. They were very angry about this, understandably. They were angry, they were confused, and they were disbelieving. They were in unbelief, in rejection of their king, the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we're thinking, we just read that, so here we go. He's preached to the Jews in, 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 in Rome here. How many of you, like, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you actually thought, don't raise your hands, you don't have to admit your embarrassment. How many of you actually thought this book ended with Paul before Caesar? You like subconsciously uh, read the book of Acts a lot of times and you, th- you thought that his appearance between, before Fe- Festus or Felix in previous chapters were actually you had conflated that into like his appearance before the actual emperor of Rome. Uh, you don't have to raise your hand. Uh, I think I, I did at one point. I think I thought that Paul actually appeared before Caesar. He doesn't. We thought maybe that Acts has been building to this point. Paul had gotten here finally to the doorstep of the imperial palace. He has just preached to the Jewish leadership. Most of them have have rejected Jesus, but Paul is going to get to Caesar, a Gentile, the king of the Gentiles. That guy will certainly come to faith in Christ. Surely that's the reason that Jesus appeared to Paul way back in Jerusalem, that he would get him to Rome so that Paul would appear before Caesar. God is going to use these human structures of the earth to now spread his fame and his glory far and wide amongst all nations. The gospel will advance into the ends of the earth because Paul finally getting to Caesar. So here we go. Here's where Paul is going to appear before Caesar, verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. The book ends, seemingly, not with a bang, but with a whimper. No Caesar, no mass conversions, no return of Christ to take his throne forever and finally. But this is actually and exactly what the book was all about all along. The proclamation of the kingdom. The king has come. The king has defeated his enemies and has taken his throne. And the gospel will advance, just as Jesus said in Acts 1, the very first chapter, that it would go forth from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it is. Every good story is a story about a man in a hole. Who's the man in the book of Acts? Well, Jesus, if anybody's ever been in a hole and has come out of it, That's certainly a good character. That's a great story about a man coming from a hole, the hole of death. But while Jesus is the main character of the story, the creator God of the universe has never been in a hole. He needs no rescuing. You are the man. You are the woman in the hole. Humanity has been, and this entire book has always been about God rescuing men and women from death, from the whole of their own making, of their sin, of their rejection of God. And this gospel message is slow, is unexpecting, but it is enduring, and it is full of power. 
It is not about politicians, not about governmental structures, but it is about a king and his kingdom and his subjects now continuing on in proclamation. This is our life, that of proclaiming the gospel message of a king and his kingdom, of a good king who would live and die for his people. I can't think of a better way to wrap up this book of Acts than to go back to Tim Keller's reflections on an old illustration from the old Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I share this little quip like once a year from the pulpit, and I don't apologize about it. It's so good. Uh, It like kind of fundamentally changed my understanding of the gospel, and I get something new from it nearly every time I read it, so here it is. If you were in our membership class a couple weeks ago, you heard it then too, but don't worry about it. Lloyd-Jones says this, news is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. Think about it. Even just some of the news that Clint was praying through and about just a few minutes ago. There is nothing that we can really do about it. We can move forward, but past news is past news. All we can do is respond to it. Now think this out, Lloyd-Jones goes on to say. Here is a king, and he goes into a battle against an invading army to defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends back to the capital city messengers, a very happy envoy. He sends back good newsers with this report. They come back and they say, it's been defeated. It's all been done. Therefore, respond with joy and now go about your lives. Conduct your lives in this peace which has been achieved for you. But if the invading army breaks through, the king sends back military advisors and says, swordsmen over here, marksmen over there, horsemen over here. We're going to have to fight for our lives. Lloyd-Jones says that every other religion sends military advisors to people. Every other religion says, you know, if you want your salvation, you're going to have to fight for your life. Every other religion is sending advice saying, here are the rites, here are the rituals, here are the laws and the regulations, earthenworks over here, marksmen over there, horsemen over there, you're going to have to fight for your life, but not the gospel. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.